Welcome back to the Ways to Flourish podcast, where we discuss how to flourish through our challenges and elevate voices across William & Mary's campus. I'm Lindsay Heck. And I'm Jenny Hellman-Dollar. And today we are joined by Dr. Kevin Clancy of the William & Mary Counseling Center. He is Assistant Director for Clinical Services, a staff psychologist here on campus since 2015. Welcome, Kevin. Great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so glad that you are able to join us here. It's Suicide Prevention Week on campus. We're using that time to highlight some of the resources that are available here to students. Um, Kevin, can you tell us what does suicide prevention play in your professional role here on campus? Well, I think it plays a really integral role at many different levels. So at, on the first level, serving as a clinical psychologist, working with our student body, uh, safety assessments are really important to the work that we do. So when um, we're engaging in any type of therapeutic service or even doing like a, a triage to provide a disposition or a treatment recommendation, we always include a safety assessment to make sure that a person is not a threat to themselves or others. And if they are if they are experiencing suicidal ideation or intent or plan, we do our best for treatment planning in terms of making sure that they're safe. Uh, on a more systemic level, we're also really involved in uh, contributing and providing recommendations to policy on campus to see what makes sense on a clinical level and making sure that our student body is safe. Mm -hmm. I also serve as a, the chair of the Suicide Prevention Coalition, which is a coalition on campus um, developing awareness of, for suicide prevention and trying to create a campus-wide dialogue about suicide so that way students and community members are better able to support each other and create more of a conversation about mental health here on campus. Mm -hmm. How frequently are we facing a situation where that safety assessment comes back do we have a higher than normal rate here on campus? I know at times uh, that's been part of our narrative. Yeah, so ever so I started here at William & Marriott in the year of 2013, and I was introduced to that narrative that William & Mary was a, had a higher level of suicide completions compared to other universities. But our data actually suggests that it's average compared to other Virginia universities. But I want to differentiate too, like having passive suicidal thoughts is actually a pretty common occurrence for college students or the general population. And many people that engage in therapeutic services like counseling um, have suicidal thoughts. And that's just a part of the human experience. And I think there's a different there's different levels to it. So if a person is more at risk in terms of like having more serious intent or plan to act on those thoughts, then we take very different steps in terms in terms of ensuring their safety. Um, and another thing I want to bring up too is confidentiality, because that's like really really important. So anytime someone engages in any type of service at the counseling center, anything that they say is kept confidential, so it doesn't leave our office. However, as a part of our informed consent, so if someone comes in for services for the first time, we talk about the limits of confidentiality. And one of the limits of confidentiality is if a person is a threat to themselves or somebody else. And that's like an imminent risk. So as a clinician, if I feel unsure based upon my clinical expertise that you may be like unsafe to go back to your dorm or apartment then we'll follow a very different procedure and we're really really transparent about that up front before a student ever shares anything and then if that does occur we're very transparent about what the process is and what it entails so a lot to dissect in that and and what everything that you just said so i want to go back to the piece where you talked about um Thoughts of suicide is a common occurrence and a human experience. Why 
does that happen to us? Why do these thoughts cross through our mind? Yeah, it could be for a lot of different reasons. Uh, studies suggest that especially when a person is feeling trapped, especially when they're feeling depressed, and with depression often comes feelings of hopelessness. So if they feel like there's not any options in terms of getting out of their current situation or level of like emotional or physical suffering, suicide could be a... Uh, a thought that they could have to kind of escape from their, their current circumstance. That doesn't mean that the person's taking those thoughts seriously or has the intent or plan to follow through. You know, sometimes people do, but for the most part, you know, it could be a passing thought that a person has. Um, it's also uh, often accompanies depression. So if someone's experiencing a depressive episode, they might be more prone to experiencing suicidal thoughts. And it also could come from uh, another risk factor is social isolation. And that's one of the important parts of connectedness and a sense of belongingness here on campus because those individuals that don't have that sense of connection are more prone to have suicidal thoughts too. So a thought is not necessarily going to be intent or put into practice. And then when you're in a situation where you've identified that someone is an absolute threat to themselves, that's really where the intervention begins to take place. Yeah, that's when the intervention begins to take place. And more often than not, individuals in my clinical um, experience are often asking for help at that point. Like That's why they're in our office, Mm -hmm. because they know that the trajectory that they're on is not sustainable and that they don't feel safe. So they're often asking for that higher level of care to help them get through that current experience. Mm -hmm. So I've heard a lot of misconceptions around campus and a lot of buzz around the exact protocol of what happens when someone expresses suicidal ideations or they have concerns about someone else. I think one of the biggest things I've heard is just that if anyone ever expresses suicidal thoughts or tells someone about that then they're immediately like shipped off campus as fast as possible so could you walk us through that process Uh uh-huh okay so i guess the first thing i want to bring up is the care reporting system and that's kind of like overseen by the dean of students office and it's a it was a great like initiative uh that william and mary implemented which allows any member of the campus body to kind of submit a Uh, a care report, which is basically a report that they have concerns about somebody else. Um, The Dean of Students receives many, many care reports a day, and they review all those, and they take an individualistic kind of approach in terms of how they respond to those. Um, If they receive, like, a really serious report or concern, or if they receive multiple care reports about a student, they may do a wellness check where they'll first go and check on that student to make sure that they're doing okay. And that's, again, facilitated by the dean's office. Um, and then going to another point that you made about suicidal thoughts, uh, I think of like 15 to 20% of the students we see in the counseling center report some level of suicidal thought that have occurred in their lifetime. So again, if we were you know, shipping people off, you know, we would be missing 15 to 20% of our student body because that's not what we do. Again, I just want to normalize um, su- passive suicidal thoughts is actually... A, pretty common occurrence and it doesn't mean that we take any action it doesn't qualify as a limit of confidentiality Mm -hmm. so we still maintain confidentiality in that in that case and oftentimes the uh, other recommendation for treatment just might be individual counseling or group counseling sorry could you give an example of like a passive suicidal thought versus something that's more uh tangible yeah so a passive suicidal thought might be like i don't want to be here anymore like i can't imagine you know 
having to wake up tomorrow and do this all over again. Um, a more active suicidal thought might be, uh, I plan on jumping into the road and getting hit by a car. Um, even in that case, we might not follow that same procedure in terms of having to act or that might not even qualify as a limit of confidentiality. Uh, we Again, we've done years of training in terms of doing assessments. So there's very specific things that we're looking for that gives us indication that a student might not be safe moving forward in the way that they have been. And truly the perspective is that you're stepping in at a point where there's like a true risk to the well-being of the student that yeah. you have collected from your training and assessment and there's evidence that persists and yeah when we're moving into that into that realm it's really we're really viewing this as like a life or death situation where we have serious concerns about this person ability to keep themselves safe and it's a very serious decision that we make so just to provide some clarification the next step um really depends on what the person's looking for, right? So the next step, regardless, is going to be a higher level of evaluation to ensure the, uh, the student's safety. And oftentimes that could happen uh, in, in different ways, but it could happen at the hospital, getting assessed by one of our community partners called Colonial Behavioral Health, who have mental health uh, professionals who will further assess for safety. We could also do a direct admission into a uh, psychiatric hospital where a person could get a higher level of care. And if that's the case, oftentimes that is student initiated and it's voluntary. So it's a student saying, I could really use some time away. Um, I, you know, I'd benefit from staying at a hospital, getting some psychiatric care and some therapeutic support. Um, we also work with the dean's office who will help coordinate family support in that instance. And they'll contact family if that's safe. If it's an abusive relationship with family, we don't even get, we make the recommendation not to get the family involved. So again, we take every decision that we make, we take fairly seriously, and we do it in the benefit of the student that we're working with. And oftentimes it is a really collaborative process, and we do take students' input into consideration when making those recommendations. Oftentimes we'll provide options in terms of what makes the best sense and work with the student to make those decisions. Um, and then there's different levels of taking time off too. I mean, and a lot of this is facilitated through the Dean of Students office in terms of taking some time away, but there's possibilities of taking time away as an accommodation if they're going through a mental health crisis with the ability to come back to campus fairly quickly. However, if they need a higher level of care, such as like inpatient treatment, they may need to take a semester's worth of time off. And honestly, that's going to set them up for the most amount of success here at William & Mary if they're able to really address their mental health concerns and come back in a better space. What we want to avoid is if a student is experiencing like significant mental health concerns, if those things keep occurring semester after semester, and it derails the student's ability to really flourish and do well academically, but also personally here on campus. So we take all those things into consideration and try to make an individual kind of recommendation for the student in terms of where they're at. But it is a really hard situation regardless, and I want to validate that and recognize that too. I'm so glad that you're sharing this information because, like Jenny said, the misconception of if I go to the counseling center and I'm transparent about my experience or my thoughts and, and share that suicide is a thought that's passed through my mind, I will be instantly whisked away from campus. And I think it is so important for students who seek services there understand how that process works. And I think 
um, being transparent in your counseling and honest in your counseling experience is going to have a much improved rate and experience. And as you go through that healing process versus holding that information back and also for people understanding that when that alternative situation does occur, it is for a legitimate reason to keep someone safe. Yeah. And just a few things to add to that. Like the more transparent and honest you are with your therapist, the more you're going to get out of the counseling experience. And I also want to normalize and validate too, like therapy could feel really scary if you're doing it for the first time, especially if you meet with a therapist that you've never talked to before and you're expected to disclose these more intimate parts of your experience. I could, I totally want to just normalize it. It could feel really scary. But again, the more open you are, the more you get from the experience. And again, people coming to the counseling center are coming to get help. And that's what we're here to do. Um, And the the number of people that we have to actually, you know, practice the limited confidentiality or, or, or move forward with that further higher level evaluation is really low. You know, a lot of students come in talking about suicidal thoughts and it's just a normal part of the services we provide. If there's someone who hasn't had experience with a counselor before, has not actively seeked mental health services, um, what are some signals, some signs that, they should be sensitive to and recognize within themselves that really signal that they should seek help. You're talking about the individual that's experiencing Mm -hmm. it. I would say any change in emotions or behavior would be good indicators, um, such as like a lack, like a loss of interest in things that they used to enjoy, whether it be like video games or exercise or sports or hanging out with friends. If those things no longer give you a sense of like interest or passion, it's a good time to engage in some self-reflection and maybe call the counseling center just to talk to someone about what might be going on. If there's an increase in some type of like maladaptive coping behavior, such as like drinking or drug use, it's a good time to call the counseling center to see maybe what's prompting that change. Um, It could be episodes or moments of sadness, crying, uh, difficulty falling asleep, uh, change in appetite, all those things are good indicators that there's some type of kind of shift in your well-being. And even uh, some students come into the counseling center and they're like, oh, I'm not really sure if this really constitutes something that's important to talk about. And they feel self-conscious about like taking up a slot or an appointment time. I just want to say like we talk to students that are experiencing a wide array of different like presenting concerns and each of them is valid. So even if you feel like it's something minor, you know, that's why we're here. So we really encourage you to come talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's just like a really collaborative conversation to figure out what's going on and to kind of give you a recommendation in terms of what could be beneficial for you moving forward. Mm-hmm. Something I'm really happy about in our society right now is that counseling and therapy is becoming a lot more normalized and even like, um, yeah, like, people find it to be important. Um, But I still do think like some people don't exactly know what happens. Like when you decide to seek help from a professional therapist or psychologist, what happens when you walk into the room? That's a great question. So we offer different appointment types and our front desk does a really great job of explaining what type of appointments are available. If it's an urgent, time-sensitive issue or concern, we offer same-day appointments, often on the spot, where one of our counselors who are kind of on duty or on team would be able to meet with that student and talk about that time-sensitive issue and provide some therapeutic support and a recommendation to help you figure whatever is going on out. 
Um, but the traditional kind of way into our system is through what we call a triage. In this upcoming academic year, we're actually changing the name to better describe what the appointment is really about. So we're changing it to an initial consultation. And it's a collaborative process just to talk to a therapist about what's going on. Um, we tend to ask a little bit more questions in their first appointment just to get a better sense of like your history, your background, your identities, what's important to you and salient to you, and get a good kind of sense of what your presenting concerns are. At the end of that appointment, we work collaboratively to kind of figure out what you're looking for in terms of services and provide a recommendation based upon our clinical expertise. And that might be for ongoing individual counseling. If it's an interpersonal concern or more of a specific concern, it might be group counseling. It might be a recommendation to engage in one of our various workshops. It could be a referral to the Student Health Center for a medication evaluation. So it really depends on what the student's needs are and also what they're looking for. Um, but again, I just want to normalize too, like therapists are just people, you know, I think there's a mystification in terms of what therapy looks like, and it's hard to really describe without engaging in it, um, because it is kind of individualistic, um, but it really, it's just a, it's an open conversation with someone that's listening intently and really cares about what's going on in your life and, you know, just helping you kind of get through whatever obstacle you're facing. Research in psychology suggests that the relationship that you have with your therapist is the mechanism for change, and that comes from just having someone to talk to that's non-judgmental, that's empathic, that listens intently, and is able to reflect back what they're hearing. And oftentimes that just helps you confront and lean into some of the emotions maybe that you're avoiding or develop insight into patterns in your life that you may have not been um, aware of. So again, that, that relationship's really important. And just adding to that, just a small detail, like if you meet with a therapist and it's not a good fit, like we tend to be pretty humble and uh, we could always connect you to another therapist that may be a better fit. And we have a pretty diverse staff in terms of our identities and styles. So you could always request to if, if another therapist may be a better fit for you. We offer third-party consultations too in the counseling center. So if someone is ever concerned about a roommate or another campus community member, they could come talk to one of the counseling center um, staff about how to proceed with that. And something that we always hear about is like students worried about asking a friend or talking to a friend about suicide, thinking that the friend might get kicked off a of campus or that they might not respond well or they might act out. And again, that's that tends not to happen. The best way to support a friend in need is to ask directly about it and connect them with that care. So talking about Suicide Prevention Week in general, um, so September 4th through 10th is Suicide Prevention Week, but the entire month of September is Suicide Prevention Month. Why do we recognize that and why do we spend so much time talking about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just want to point out like one of the biggest myths related to talking about suicide is if that you ask the question or you use the word suicide it's going to somehow be implanted into that mm -hmm. person's head and they're going to think about it more or they might be more prone to having suicidal thoughts or acting on those thoughts. That's not true. Asking about suicide directly is the best way to support someone and it's not going to increase the likelihood of them having the thoughts or acting on the thoughts. I think talking about it is the intent because I think there's been such a stigma related to suicidality and 
it, I think there's been a lot of movement towards creating a conversation about it. One of the best ways to prevent suicide is asking directly about it to people that you're concerned about, having direct conversations, relating to them, listening to them, being there for them, and connecting them to care. So through Suicide Prevention Week, we work towards developing greater awareness, reducing stigma, and creating a conversation on campus because the more conversations we have about it, the more people in need we're able to kind of touch and reach out to and connect to. So it's really about creating a campus-wide conversation and dialogue about it because awareness is one of the key factors in terms of preventing suicide. One of the resources that people have access to, Campus Connect program, the training, um, if they want to have a more in-depth connection with the counselor about how to follow the correct steps. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so Campus Connect was a program that was developed at Syracuse University, and it is a uh, lengthy training where we have trained professionals. Uh, Most of them are in the field of mental health, and we help people understand how to talk about suicide with someone that might need that extra level of care, how to assess for that, and how to support them. And again, talking about, I mean, it could be a really stressful situation when we care about someone who might be experiencing suicidal thoughts. So it's a training on how do we support our community members in terms of getting them the help and support that they need. Um, and again, it can't fall like all in the counseling center's uh, shoulders, nor you know, would that be beneficial. It really is a community-based kind of approach and conversation that we need to have. Yeah, and just one more resource. So the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline It just got a new number, didn't it? It did. So it's changing to 988. So if you dial the number 988, um, you'll be able to talk to a mental health provider who will be able to provide support if you're in a moment of crisis. At this time, I think the average wait time to talk to someone is about 45 seconds. So it's a great resource. It's like even in the middle of the night and, you know, you don't have any of your friends to talk to or reach out to and you feel like you're in need. It's a great resource uh, to be able to call. And the classic 10-digit number is still, if people use that or reference it, it's still active, but so much easier to remember 988. I'm, I'm so glad they made that shift. Yeah, it's, it's supposed to kind of be like 911, but the issue with 911 is that they don't have the capacity to meet mental health demands. So this is kind of like a, a way to really support a tremendous need within our, within our community. Mm-hmm. This has been such a helpful conversation. Thank you so much for being with us today and just shed light on the process. And I think will be very helpful for people um, who have had those misconceptions or questions. Uh, Thanks so much. Absolutely. And also thank you to our sponsor, United Healthcare, for support of this podcast. Ways to Flourish is produced by Lindsay Heck, Calder Sprinkle, and myself, Jenny Helmendaller.